Will you turn in the word, please, with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Growing up in my neighborhood, I had a really good friend, and he was a good guy, and uh, we played a lot of street hockey together. Remember street hockey? You have to yell for cars. It's fantastic. And so we played uh, with our roller blades. If you had roller skates, you were out. No skates. So we played with our roller blades, played a lot of street hockey, had a great time. He lived in the neighborhood. And we went to school together. And one day he said, hey, why don't you come with me? We're going to go to my uncle's house. He doesn't live too far from here. And then we're going to go to this special like corporate barbecue thing that they're doing with them. And, I, and so he invited me along. And I was like, OK, you know, if one of those like, work function things where you can invite your family. So I got invited to this thing. And so uh, we jumped in the car. We went down the road a little bit. And all of a sudden, we were in this back kind of country area. And we turned um, now in back country area in St. Louis County. And turned on, on the road, and a gate opened up and went down a long driveway to the biggest house I've seen in my entire life. And his uncle, his last name, you would recognize from a grocery store chain here in St. Louis. And so the house of this guy um, had a full basketball court in the basement. And so on the regular first floor, there was a window, like a room, kind of this, this size with little stadium seating in it, and it just had glass, and you could watch the basketball stuff. Um, they had like a seven-car garage with cars. And at the time, the regular original Nintendo was the thing. And the, the son, the cousin of my friend, had stacks of games, which I was like, wow. I mean, it was amazing. It was amazing. The house was amazing. We went to this cool place, and it was really neat. And they had this big barbecue thing. And it was the first time in my life they had a um, catch. The kids had to catch a pig. You ever had that where they grease up the pig and then you got to chase it and try to get it? Never done that in my life. It was the only time I've ever done it. I did not catch the pig. Interesting experience. Save that for another sermon. That's another one. But that house is really cool. And, I, you know, praise God. If he gives us big houses, what a blessing. If he gives us special cars or, or airplanes or dirigibles, blimps, whatever, praise God. It's a fancy word, huh? Um, what? Praise God. The things of this world are fleeting. And good things are a blessing, and they're great. I've said it before, if you get a Lamborghini, I know who you could buy it from, number one. Number two, I would love to have a ride in it. That would be a blessing. But the Lord, he doesn't measure our success by what's in our bank account. The world does that. The world measures our success by what kind of clothes you wear, by how you look, by what your house looks like, how many square feet is it, where is it located, because a house in the country part of St. Louis County is very different than living in the urban part of East St. Louis or Detroit or downtown St. Louis or whatever. So people make all kinds of determinations about you based on these monetary things. God doesn't do that. But I want you just for a moment to think about the coolest house or hotel or place you've ever been in that kind of took your breath away, where you saw stacks of Nintendo games, <laughs> where you were like, wow, I mean, there's a whole basketball court down here. That kind of place. Maybe it was a hotel. Maybe it was a cool restaurant you've been to. Maybe it was a friend's house. Maybe it's your house. Praise the Lord. But think about that place. Now, in the Bible, King David, who's the king of Israel, he's been anointed to be the king, and he finds himself fighting a lot of wars. And one of the wars that he's fighting is against the Philistines, and the Philistine people have taken over a bunch of chunks of land, 
And so much so have they taken over areas of the territory that David has been relegated to the Valley of Elah, where he is um, hiding in caves. And he has these guys, they call them the mighty men. They're basically his generals. But the mighty men were people of valor. Valor is a funny word that we don't ever use in our, in our normal talk nowadays, but it means a person who has an effect upon the enemy. That's what valor is. Valor is somebody who does something, an act of valor, does something that has an effect, a positive effect for your side upon the enemy. That's what valor means. So these guys are effective generals. They're known by their valor. They are the mighty men. And David one day is sitting around the campfire and he's sort of just thinking and lamenting and he's thinking about a well, his favorite well from his hometown in Bethlehem. Now this might not have been a place with Nintendo stacks of games that take your breath away, but the water was good and it's home and it was special. And he just sort of whispers it, man, I wish I had a drink from that well. And three of the mighty men hear him. Now they're generals and their king has said, a desire. Did you know that in the military, a desire is the same as an order? You can use interchangeably, I order you or I desire that you are interchangeable. So they hear a desire from their king, which they take as an order. And so three of those generals, those men of valor who have an effect on the enemy, risk their lives to break through the Philistine line, to go by night into Bethlehem, to get a single thing of water out and to bring it back to King David so he can have a drink that he longed for. The mighty men show up and they give him the drink and David is beside himself. He says, how could I drink your very life that you risked for me? And he pours it out because he's, he's so honored by what they've done. And he says, let's go finish this battle. And they go on to fight and they free the area and it's amazing. I tell you that story because as we come to Luke chapter 19, we're going to be reading a very different story that's not going to seem to make sense for a moment. But bear with me, it will all come together. And in Luke chapter 19, God is showing us about his agenda because a king has come into a town. This is the king of kings. This is the God who by the whisper of his intention created you. He doesn't just get what he wants when he whispers. He effectively can do or change anything. This is the God who's able to do anything. And maybe from the summer retreat time, you've had that song just pouring through your head every day, which would be a good thing. He is able to do anything. Let's read together in Luke chapter 19 of this account of what happens. He that's Jesus, Luke 19.1, Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was very rich. And he had been seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran up ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone into the house to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, 
I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Praise the Lord for his word. Now we've heard this is a classic Sunday story, Sunday school story, right? Zacchaeus, the little guy, climbs the tree to see Jesus. In the Sunday school, what, what do they tell you about this story? What is the, usually the moral of the story in the Sunday school version? We just read it. What is that? What do they usually, what do we teach the kids? Jesus came. Yep. Jesus called his name. What else? Have faith like Zacchaeus. Climb the tree. You want to see Jesus. Don't let your small stature as a child keep you away. You can climb up there too. He sees you. And those are true, and those are good things. Praise God. But what's interesting here is Jesus is entering this town, Jericho. Why is Jericho significant? Do you remember Jericho in the Bible? Remember in Sunday school? Joshua won the battle of Jericho. Jericho. So this is the first city that the Israelites come into under the command of Joshua, who, who, over, uh, who succeeded, succeeded from uh, Moses. Man, my words are family there for a second. And Joshua came in, now he's leading the people, and now God's first command as they come over the river is, go to Jericho, and we're going to take that city. And Jericho had walls that were feet thick. It was impenetrable. It was a fortress. Jericho was a place you could not defeat, and God chose that as the first place to go. And do you remember what the people did? They walked around it. Seven days they walk around the city. Then they shout with a great shout and blow the trumpet, and the walls crash down on the inhabitants of the city. And God won a great victory against the people. Think of it this way. For six days, God gave the opportunity for Jericho the city to repent of their trust in their wall and instead put trust in the king of kings, and they refused. And then God used a trumpet blast to demonstrate that his power was greater than their idol, the wall. And God wins this victory over Jericho. The people come in, they defeat everything, they take over that city, and they completely destroy it. And God said that this city, because of their idolatry, is devoted to destruction. Don't touch anything in it. Don't take it. It's not for you. Everything needs to die. Everything needs to be crumbled down. This is not a city to be rebuilt. In fact, Joshua had even made a curse that anyone who rebuilds this city would do so at the pain of their own lives. And later on in Elijah and Elisha's time, under King Ahab, who was evil king, and the, the witchcraft that the nation was going through, one of the officials rebuilds the city, and there's judgment that comes on his household, and, and his sons die as an effect of it. But the city is rebuilt, a city that God himself had condemned to destruction because of their idolatry, disobedience, and wickedness. Sometimes those things that we read about in the Old Testament, are, they, they kind of hurt our modern sensibilities. It seems like God is so unfair. He takes the, the Jews in, and they're okay, but then he's going to crush these little people. It's not exactly like that. Remember, they had six days to repent. They did not, and they knew they saw what God did to Egypt. They knew who he was. They refused to obey him. And so God's judgment comes, and that's what it looks like. But here's the thing. That same God who said all these things is walking into the city again. 
He's walking into a city that should not be standing. He's walking into a city that was sinful to rebuild. And he's coming in. This is the king of glory who's entering Jericho, a place of curse. And he walks in and there's a guy there, Zacchaeus, who's little. And he's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. And he's very rich. And the way he most likely got rich, because remember, Israel is an occupied place. So the Romans are very rich. And they have occupied and are oppressing the Israelite people. So Zacchaeus, an Israelite, the only way he's going to get rich is if he allies himself to the Romans against his own people. And the common way that these, the tax collectors would become rich is they were representatives, so they were Israelites as well, amongst the Israelites, but they would take a little bit extra from their own countrymen to make sure to line their own pockets. So the, the problem with this, though, too, is it's not just somebody who's stealing from you. It's somebody who's stealing from you with a big soldier standing next to you at the threat of killing your whole family. So it's kind of like in those mafia movies when the mafia guys come in and they say, hey, your business needs protection from me, but protection. And so I'm going to shake you down for this money. And if you don't give it to me, those windows are going to start breaking. Your family's going to get hurt. And next thing you know, your kid's got a bloody nose, gets beat up on his way to school. And it's the same guys doing it. But they're extorting you for money to be protected. But could you imagine if that was your brother doing it to you? And he's using the mafia muscle. He's using the Roman muscle, the Roman spears, because they will kill you. And call it allegiance to Rome and allegiance to Caesar against allegiance to your own family. So here's Zacchaeus. He's not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector, and he's very rich. And he got rich by extorting money from his own family members in this place, Jericho, living in a cursed city. And Jesus walks in, and he's going, and Zacchaeus wants to see him. Now, Zacchaeus probably has Roman soldiers that work with him for him. If he wants to get through a crowd, I guarantee you he can get through a crowd. Isn't it interesting, though, that he goes and climbs a tree? Why would you climb a tree? If you're very rich, do you climb trees? Yeah, you get a preferred spot. Or you send your people to talk to their people to make something happen. You know what I mean? You're, if you're very rich, you don't climb trees. That's beneath you. But Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see Jesus. Why would he do that, do you think? Part of the reason is he's outside of the people. So the crowd doesn't like him. He can get through the crowd if he wants with the Romans, but this is not to see Caesar. This is not to see a Roman official or the governor of the area. This is to see Jesus. And the crowds are pressing in on Jesus because they love him. Not too long before this, Jesus is healing blind men in the same area. Great things are happening. The people know who Jesus is. And Zacchaeus wants to see who he is. And so he goes and he climbs a tree, which is pretty beneath him to try to see Jesus. But if you really want to see Jesus, if you just want to get your eyes on him, maybe you could climb a tree. But if you want to have any kind of interaction with him, why would you climb a tree? It doesn't really make sense. But that's what he does. He's kind of running away, actually. He's sort of in a shameful way climbing the tree because he wants to catch a glimpse, but he knows he doesn't belong. Especially with this guy, Jesus. A little bit. 
I, th I think he, I don't think he planned on Jesus stopping. I think he just wanted, oh, okay. He's taller than me, that's cool. You know, that's probably kind of what he's doing. But something in his heart, though, he, he wants, he's willing to sacrifice his great status for the shame of climbing a tree, which is weird. So he sees Jesus. Now Jesus comes, he stops. He says, Zacchaeus, he knows his name. And what does he say? I must dine at your house. I must stay at your house. You know, Jesus told us he doesn't do anything that the Father doesn't say to do. All he does is what the Father says to do. So could you imagine Jesus walking and the Father says, that's Zacchaeus, go to his house. Yes, Father. Zacchaeus, I must go to your house. It's interesting, isn't it? And so Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, obeys the Father to go to the chief tax collector's house. It's probably the nicest house in Jericho other than maybe the Roman mayor of the area. One of the finest homes. So you've got Roman mayor, maybe the centurion guy who's like over the army, Zacchaeus. He's got stacks of video games. It's nice. And what would you want to do if you had Jesus come into your house? You want to impress him, right? So you say, this is my Persian rug. I got it from actually Persia. This is my whatever thing I've had from birth. Stacks of video games. Check it out. Would you like to play basketball? Like, that's what you do, right? Because you want to impress him. And so Jesus comes in, and he sees the opulence of this beautiful house. But something happens to Zacchaeus, because if you notice, Luke, who's very detailed, says nothing about the house. He doesn't say anything. He only mentions two things. The first thing he mentions is, the people are grumbling. How could he go into that sinner's house? And the second thing he says is that Zacchaeus does something drastic. The first thing he does is takes half of what he owns and gives it away to the poor. The second thing he does is he's going to repay fourfold anybody that he's defrauded. Understand, he's basically giving away his entire fortune. He's probably going to need to move out of this house in order to make this happen. His allegiance has changed. He had allied himself to Rome and the benefits that he could get in a monetary way to have a big house and have beautiful things. And with one encounter with Jesus who called his name, all of that went away. And now he wants to do what God says to do and live in a just way. You know, what's interesting here is it doesn't mention this, but especially in this time period, if you've ever traveled in the developing world, um, you know that poverty is everywhere. It's here too, right? We see it all the time. But especially in these places, it's hard to insulate it in the developing world. So imagine for a moment you have Zacchaeus in his beautiful mansion with beautiful windows. And right outside those windows, who do you think is peering in? It's the poor everywhere. Jericho especially, remember, it's a cursed city. Jericho was not known for its great beauty and opulence. It was a place where things grew and palm trees grew and there was sort of an oasis there because Israel is more or less a desert. But here there's kind of an oasis where palm trees grow. But the people were either rich like Zacchaeus or at the very depths of poverty. And Jesus is sitting in the most opulent, one of the finest houses of all of Jericho. What does God really care about? He cares about people. Way more than he cares about the Persian rug or the basketball court, or the Nintendo games. 
And Nintendo games are fun, and Persian rugs are beautiful, and basketball is great, and if you have that in your house, praise God. But what is he really looking at? The change of heart that happens with Zacchaeus puts his house in order in a different way than he had it before. Where his house is not organized around all the stuff anymore. And what he could take and how he could ally himself with, with Rome to get his best life out of it. But instead now, he is aligning his life with Jesus' teachings and what he wants to do. And then Jesus goes on and does something very strange. And in verse 11, let's read on. Here's what he says. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Jericho is not far away. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came and said to him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a, sev a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have at least collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood nearby, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, to everyone who has, more will to be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Praise the Lord for his word. What an interesting thing to say to everybody. You know, a lot of times we do the Zacchaeus story, and we talk about having faith like Zacchaeus, and that's good, and that's a great lesson. But Jesus has another lesson that he's giving. And he talks about this money and giving the servants money and, and reaping things from them. What do you think he's after? You know, Jesus is really telling them what he's doing. He's coming. He's receiving a kingdom. He is the king. And he's investing in his people that they would do something for him. Notice when the guy with the 10 minas, let's call it $10. Let's call it $10 million. The guy with $10 million makes $10 million more. He gives him authority over places. The guy with the $5 million who makes $5 million more, he gives him authority over the places. But he doesn't say, you're better or you're whatever. He just makes judgments as the king based on how the people did. Now that's important because the amount is not so important as the faithfulness. And what I'm saying by that is, he told the servant who was wicked, who stored away that one mina. He said, you could have at least put it in the bank that something would have happened with it, instead of trying to treasure it to yourself. Who do you think he's talking to here? 
Because Zacchaeus, who's a very wealthy man, he had the $10 million. It's changing his whole lifestyle. He's giving it up. He's doing all these things to show his allegiance to Jesus. But there are people grumbling who are there saying, how is it that he could go into the house of a sinner? And these people that are saying that are also people who have been endowed by God with knowledge of the scriptures, with knowledge of him, with relationship in some way with God, who have tried to walk in holiness and walk in lives to follow him. And they're overhearing now the king of glory talking about the resources that he has given out. And he's not just talking about money. He's talking about truth. He's talking about revelation. He's talking about himself and what he's given to people. And these very same people who are challenging Jesus, saying he goes into the house of sinners, are the same ones who claim to know God. But instead of sharing it with all these poor people around who are clamoring at the windows, who are watching to get in, who have nothing, instead, they've held it to themselves. They've wrapped it in a handkerchief. They've buried it deep within themselves. Here's my question for you today. Jesus calls your name. And the Father says, go to their house. And he came to your house. How would he find it in order? Would he find it in the opulence of what's been taken from other people? I don't think so. There are no Roman tax collectors here. And we love Jesus. But would he find the resources of truth buried in us alone, in a handkerchief buried away instead of giving out to all the people clamoring for hope? Would he find us going out to sinners and going out to people who need him? Would he find us with a house in order that reflects his glory and his grace and his goodness? Or would he find a place where we have stacks of video games for our own comfort? Where we have basketball courts that no one can watch except a little room? Where people aren't really welcome? Where nobody can come in? Where unless you get that right invitation, it's as slippery as trying to get a pig at an event. What would he find? Would he find our house in order? The beauty of this passage is that Jesus Christ, right after this, is setting his face like flint to go into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and he is marking the beginning of his own death by walking as a king into the city that he rightfully owns, where he will go and be the sacrificial lamb for his people. The question is not, is our house in order because we've put it in order and done all the right things? The question is, have we embraced and we love Jesus so much and we serve him so well and we know him so well and we rest on his gospel and we know his death and resurrection and we love Jesus and we spend time with him and we're in his word and we pray in the spirit and we're close to him and our whole lives exude love for Jesus. Is our testimony him or is our testimony comfort? And we're living in a time now where more and more and more the testimony of our whole nation's life is about our comfort and our truth and what we think and what we want to be and we can define ourselves and we have all this stuff that's just about me. When God came to Zacchaeus and he said, I must go to your house. And Zacchaeus' heart reaction from God was to do something for other people and demonstrate God's glory even in the midst of a cursed place. Do we demonstrate his glory in the midst of a cursed place? Now this place belongs to him. It's not cursed. It belongs to him. 
the king of kings who has given us resources, money, yes, but also truth and revelation and knowing him and relationship with him and walking with him and entrance into his, his sanctuary at any time in prayer. You can be close to God any time. You know, Zacchaeus could never have known that in this time period because Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. Until he put his faith in Jesus and after Jesus went to the cross, it must have been amazing to know the Holy Spirit come into him after the Holy Spirit had already affected him and changed him. But now we live in a time where Christ, raised from the dead, has given us his Holy Spirit. He's made us his. And it doesn't matter what's in our bank account. This is not a sermon about money. It's a sermon about faithfulness. And it's a sermon about more than that, faithfulness in our time when there are so many competing philosophies everywhere vying for people's attention that if the name of Jesus is not proclaimed by us, it will get lost in the fray. We have got to be clear about who Jesus is, that when he walks into the city, he is the king of kings. That when people come into our homes, they know Jesus Christ is over this place. When they meet us and they see our character, <coughs> how we live and what we do, they know that Jesus reigns here. Have we taken the truth and the resources that God has given us and buried it in a handkerchief? Or are we, are we bearing fruit for Jesus? How do you do that? The first thing that we do is we trust Jesus. Put your faith in him. When I say put our house in order and is our house in order, what will Jesus find there? What I really mean is submit yourself to Jesus. The Bible tells us that our spiritual act of worship is to place ourselves before him that we are his. We have to do that every day. Don't let other desires and other thoughts and other things and other comforts come in and vie for attention in your life where we start to forsake what God is calling us to. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me um, how just watching, I love watching movies and how movies show what the culture is going through. And one of the things that's happening right now under our noses, and it will be the fight of our lives, it will be the fight of our lives, is that the, the culture is telling people, you can be what you need to be, and the next evolutionary jump, if you will, of humanity is to combine with technology. And if you combine with technology, then you can, if you can dream it, you can be whatever you want to be. That's why there are movies coming out about and shows about your consciousness getting, getting put into computers or uh, robots that are becoming human or AI, artificial intelligence, that comes to life and you can't tell if it's a person or not a person. There's a lot of those movies right now. But there's also this trend where you can augment yourself. You can augment yourself, and you can do it by stuff, technology, to be the better you, who you really need to be. Did you know that the US government now is toying with taking humanity out of the question of your gender? Your humanity doesn't even have to be part of your gender anymore. What does that mean? So you can identify as male or female or other or thing or at your heart, you can say, I identify as an animal. What is that? It's craziness, but it's a philosophical push against God, against image bearing. It's people saying, we will not have this man rule over us. And the reality is we have got to be clear of who rules over us. It's not, don't hear me wrong, I'm not talking about gender and things. That's a whole other discussions. I'm talking about we can't let the philosophies of our day rule who we are because God has entrusted us with truth and he is a severe king and a good king and a gracious king 
And he's kind and he, he rewards us for faithfulness. And also he expects us to bear fruit. But the temptation is sometimes to shut back and hold down and go back and retreat and not say the truth because I don't know how they're going to take that and I don't want to offend anybody and I don't want to you know, say something wrong that might be taken wrong and all this kind of stuff. And I'm not telling you to go out and offend people in a way that's going to be harassment toward them. Don't attack people. But I am telling you, we've got to stand on the word of God everywhere. And the very first place we stand is on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why am I saying all these things to us? I'm saying this to us because... God is good. God is good. And he is on the move. And he is using all of these world events and coronavirus and all these things. And he is positioning people to do good in his world for what he wants to do. What is his agenda? Jesus Christ glorified in all things. The church representing Christ, we are his bride. In all things bring glory to Jesus. God is exposing corruption in governments around the world, even our own. God is doing all kinds of great things. And we can't be a people who just take the truth and hide it in a handkerchief and put it away. We also can't be a people who just climb trees. Oh, I wonder how, what he looks like. Ooh, I'll stay over here in the tree. We got to be a people who are going to respond to the word of God. We're going to hear from the Holy Spirit. We're going to go where he tells us to go and have houses in order, that when Jesus comes in and he looks and he sees, we are being faithful with all the things he has given us. The truth, the gospel, life in him, communion, knowing him. That's what I'm talking about. And it comes out in money and things too, but our lives reflect him. Our lives reflect him. We just had a great conference, and it was a great time to be together, and we talked about the cross of Christ. And it's stunning to me how many people now don't know anything about the cross. They don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about the Bible. What happened to us? Isn't that weird? And I'm saying that in the sense of even in our own society in St. Louis, Missouri, I remember even 20 years ago, I'm old enough to say that, where people, I could have conversations that would have at least a little biblical knowledge of something. But now it's, it's not the same. And God has called us as a people who he has given unlimited mean us to by his grace because he owns all things that we would stand on his word we would say the truth we would honor Jesus and we would disciple all the people that he gives us is God helping you to put your house in order are you hiding the truth away like Jesus are you walking around the town and you hear the father say go to their house are we letting the inconvenience of that pull us away from what God is calling us to do? Or are we embracing what God has said because he has called us to be his ambassadors and to overtake the city for him? I'm excited for what God is doing. Mm -hmm. You should be too. I'm telling you all these things because he has made you his ambassador. He's made you his. He is with us. He has put his spirit in us. He is good. His death and his resurrection, the gospel, is power unto salvation. We know him. He is leading us. He is taking us into green pastures. He knows us through and through. He has gifted us to do good things in him. God is good. The question for us, though, today, what does our house look like? Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at truths we confess and, and plans that we're making in the church and things that we're doing, and we're looking at our house together. 
How are we standing on the word of God? How are we proclaiming it? What does it look like to disciple people? Are we in faith for those outside? Are we being faithful with the word God has given us that we would do good for him? And so as a little introduction to that, I want to just say God is good and he's shaping us and forming us. Let's do what he says. Amen. He's good. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you that you're good. Lord, thank you for your word and for your grace. Lord, thank you that you love people. Lord, and as you give us resource and you give us truth and you give us life, albeit money or be it actual revelation or whatever it is, Father, thank you that you are faithful to grow those things in us, that we might honor you. Lord, I pray that we as a congregation would bless you and glorify you in all the things that we do. Lord, help us, Father, not to bury truth in handkerchiefs. But help us, God, that we would be an honor to you in all of our proclamation, in all of our discipleship, in all of our life, in all of our interactions with our neighbors. God, use us for your glory. Use us that we would herald your word well and see you glorified every day. Thank you, Lord, that you are on a mission. And that mission is to see Jesus glorified in the whole earth. Lord, use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you and be with you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have an excellent week, and we'll see you next week. God bless you all.